I know we have some teachers in our midst, and uh, there are times when uh, you invite your students to do certain things that uh, sort of, you know, sort of make you laugh, and you can't help but laugh from things that they do, and especially sometimes things that they write. And a teacher had asked uh, their students, uh, she had asked her students to write a, an, an essay on anatomy. An essay on anatomy. And that's your body parts. And uh, this is what he turned in. He said, as he wrote, your head is kind of round and hard, and your brains are in it, and your hair on it. Your face is the front of your head, where you eat and make faces. Your neck is what keeps your head out of your collar, and it's hard to keep clean. <laughs> your shoulders are sort of shelves where you hook your suspenders on them. Your stomach is something that is, that is you do not eat often enough, it hurts, and spinach don't help it none. I know, bad grammar, but this is what he wrote. Your spine is a long bone in your neck that keeps you from, fo from folding up. Your back is always behind you no matter how quick you turn around. <laughs> your arms, you got to pinch, pitch them and so you can reach the butter. Your fingers stick out of your hand so you can throw a curve and add up arithmetic. Your legs, <laughs> if what if you have got two of, you cannot get to first base. Well, that's hard to read. Neither can your sister. Your toes are what always get stubbed. And that's all there is of what you've got except what's inside of you, and I never saw it. You know, children kind of sometimes say the most amazing things. And if you were to describe this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes who was lying in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem, how would you describe him? More than likely, most of us would not do any better in describing the Jesus that we saw than this third grader who described his anatomy. Words do not compare to the matchless beauty of the gift of Christmas. It's hard for Isaiah to describe this beautiful gift of Christmas in Isaiah 9-6 that Pastor Gail read just a few moments ago. But in the words that he uses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he does the best that he can to describe this baby that we celebrate, the gift that we call Christmas. And so what do you and I discover by unwrapping the gift of Christmas? Isaiah 9, 6. There are three things that we discover, and I want to go to that very quickly today. The first thing that we discover in our text is this, that we discover that the wait, the wait is over. The wait is over. We no longer have to wait any longer. The Messiah is here. The Savior has been born. Isaiah says, unto us a son, a, a, a child is given, and a son is, no, a child is born and a son is given. A child is born and a son is given, and his name and his name shall be called, and he begins to describe what the baby is going to be called. Now, I want you to notice in the text that we start off by this one phrase, and his name shall be called. He describes the child that is to be born, and a child is to be born, and a son is to be given, and his name and his, that child, that son, that baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, that Messiah, that Savior, that Son of God, his name. The word name is a word that is given specifically not just to Jesus but to every single person. Your name means something. Do you know what your name means? My name means manly. We named our son Matthew, our first child. We named him Matthew because that name means gift of God. He was a gift 
from God to us. Names are given because they mean something. Names are descriptive about that individual. And this child that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger was given a specific name, and that name was given to him because it meant something, not just to the child, but it defined and it described the characteristics, the attributes, and the nature of the child that was wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger in that little town of Bethlehem. The Messiah was given a name specifically by God intentionally for a purpose. He was given a name. And in that name, he shall be called. Why does it talk about a name that he shall be called? Because we know that the child was wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger, that his name was given to him. It was the name Jesus. But the names that Isaiah is about to describe that sort of talk about the attributes and the characteristics and the nature of this child are not specifically the name that we know in the gift of Christmas, specifically the name Jesus. While he begins to talk about and describe for us this, these names, he is suggesting to us that these names mean something. These are additional names that have been given to this Messiah, to this Savior, to this Jesus. And those who have come to know him and who have unwrapped the gift and have personally received him as their Savior and Lord will come to know him in regard to the character, the attributes, and the nature of this name. In other words, this is not sort of redefining the name of Jesus. It's saying to those of us who come to know this, this baby who unwrap the wrapping and discover the gift, the Savior, the Son of God who was given for us through a personal relationship with him, we understand that in his name we will call him these things because as we learn about him and come to know him and experience him, he will then become these things for us. Sure, his name is Jesus, but he's also these things. And so he's saying, and his name shall be called. There is something about that name. There is something about that name. If you remember Joseph, when he was considering divorcing Mary because he had discovered that she was with child and he knew in his heart of hearts that they had not done anything to cause this pregnancy and he knew that he was not the father and the Bible tells us that he thought to put her away quietly, to divorce her quietly, not to bring shame and hurt and harm to her and he thought he would put her away quietly and while he was considering that plan, he slept that night and as he slept, an angel came to visit him. And as the angel visited him, the angel said in Matthew 1.21, She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. You will marry Mary, and you will see this child brought into the world, and you shall name his name Jesus. There is something about the name of Jesus that is special and that is unique above every other name. Why? Because he says he shall save his people from their sin. The word Jesus means Yahweh saves. And you call his name Jesus because he is the Yeshua, he is the Messiah, he is the promised Christ child who will save people from their sins. His name alone can save from sin. And the Bible says that Joseph woke up from that dream, married Mary, and named Jesus, Jesus. Why? Because he was commanded to, because there's something about that name. As we take a look at John chapter 20, not on the screen, but open your Bibles, John chapter 20. We're going to take you on a little, little test today, so get your Bibles ready. I'm not going to give it to you on the screen today. You're going to have to exercise the finger and the opening of the Bible. And uh, <coughs> as dark it is in here, it's probably best that you have a, an iPad or an iPhone or something like that. Uh, I carry my Bible with me everywhere I go. It's, it's on my iPhone, and uh, it's handy, who would know that technology could be used of the Holy Spirit to put his inerrant, infallible word on it, and you can carry it around everywhere you go and have it access to it all the time. Not only that, but I can access all my commentaries and all my word studies and all that on my iPhone. So it's, it's wonderful to be able to have that, and I hope maybe at some point, you, if you don't, for Christmas, if you have one of those smartphones that you get you an app that gives you the Bible on it, and you use it everywhere you go. And in settings like this, it can illuminate not only your eyeballs, but also your understanding. All right, Pastor Gail? There you go, that's what I thought. And so, John chapter 20, we see 
that uh, where where Jesus has uh, has been raised from the dead, and Jesus has appeared to his disciples in the upper room in their hiding place. Unfortunately, when he appeared unto his disciples, Thomas was not there. And Thomas said, I will not believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead until I see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands. And Jesus appears another time. And this time, Thomas is there. And he touches Jesus and he sees the marks. And he says, my Lord and my God. He declares Jesus to be his Lord and his God. And following that, it's interesting that John in his gospel records for us John 20, verse 30. And now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Notice what it says next. And that by believing, and that by believing, you may have life, you may have life in his name. You may have life in his name. Faith does not give you life. It is Jesus who gives you life. And when you place your faith in Jesus, he gives you life. And that life comes from the name of Jesus. There is something about that name. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Flip over there in your Bible to Acts 3, 1. Here we have Peter and John. They're on their way to the temple. And it is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's the traditional standard time for every devout Jew to make his way to the temple and to pray. And Peter and James, even though Pentecost has fallen and they've had that wonderful uh, time of, of Pentecost and all the results of the fall of Pentecost and all those people were saved, they're still holding on to some of the Jewish traditions. So at 3 o'clock, they're going toward the temple to pray. And as they walk through, they're in the, the inner court and they're walking into the past, the beautiful gate. And there is a man, the Bible says, that was a cripple that was placed there strategically so they could beg for alms, that he could beg for financial support, that people would give him money. And they knew that the pious people that would come into the temple to worship would then dig deeper a little bit and give money to this cripple. And so he was there. And as Peter and, and Peter, and as, uh, <laughs> um, let me get my bearings, as Peter and John, that's right, as Peter and John are going by, he yells for alms. And uh, Peter speaks to him. And he speaks to him in a way that grabs his attention. And once he has grabbed his attention, he says to him these beautiful words. Now, in verse Acts chapter 3, verse 6. But Peter said to him, you have, uh, I have no silver and gold. I have no silver and gold. How many can say that? I have no silver and I have no gold. Raise your right hand if you have that. I just noticed people that have their hands up. There's the ones you need to follow outside and give them your Christmas list, okay? I have no silver and gold, he says, but what I do have, what I do have, I give to you. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In whose name? The name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And when he said that, he reached out his right hand and he grabbed him by the hand and he pulled him up. And the Bible says as he pulled him up, his ankles and his legs were strengthened. They became strong and he stood. And as he stood, he stood there for a moment and then he began to walk and then he began to leap and then he began to dance. And he wasn't Baptist, he was Pentecostal. And he danced into the place of prayer with the two disciples and everyone was marveled. What did that? The name of Jesus. Just the mention of his name healed this cripple of his disease. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Paul is in Philippi on one of his missionary journeys and he walks into Philippi and sort of camps out there for a little bit and decides that it's time for prayer and he makes his way out through the city gates and he's moving toward a place that he believes is a place where he can pray and as he's moving there there's a slave woman who just happens to see him and she begins to declare servants that they are the servants of the most high God and that they proclaim the way of salvation 
And she says this over and over and over and over and will not stop repeating herself at the top of her lungs. This annoys the Apostle Paul. It annoys him. And so the annoyed Apostle Paul, verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. Many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the, to the Spirit, I command you, notice it says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. I command you in what? In the name of Jesus to come out of her. And immediately it did. The name of Jesus overpowered a woman who was demon-possessed of demons. And the demons, by just the mention of the name of Jesus, were expelled from her and she was set free. There is power in the name of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. One last verse. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, 10, and 11. The apostle describes in Philippians this beautiful passage about a Jesus who came and who was born and who disrobed himself of his glory in heaven and assumed the servant, suffering servant uh, form in the form of Jesus who died for our sins. And he could have considered himself equal to be with God and, and not have done that, but he did anyway for us. And because he was willing to be the suffering servant to die for us, notice what the Spirit says through the writing of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. God the Father. In the last day, Pastor Mike, I can't invite people to my last day study because it's over. We won't be doing it anymore, at least for a while. But in, <laughs> but in the last day, when Jesus returns, it says here that because he was willing to do what he did, that God himself bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. And that one of these days, everyone that has ever lived throughout history, from the beginning of time to the end of time, will find themselves seeing Jesus for who he is, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And everyone will know the name of Jesus and that he is who he claimed to be. He is Jesus. That is his name. There's something about that name. I don't know where you are today and I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know where you're going in the future. But I do know that wherever you go, there's a name above every name that once you mention the name of Jesus, and you invite him into the equation. You bring him into your life. You ask him to solve your problem. You ask him to defeat your enemy or to overcome your burden or to manage your difficulty. Just the mention of his name brings the power and the person and the presence of Jesus. There is something different about Jesus and the names that we give him because these names help us understand the attributes, the characteristics, and the nature of this one, this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger in that little town called Bethlehem. There's a reason why he's about to call him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Why? Because in those names... Those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, who have put our faith and trust in the name of Jesus, will discover these attributes to become reality in our experience and our understanding and our knowledge of him. So let's look at the names. 
So we see that unwrapping the gift, I discover, first of all, the wait is over. Jesus is here. The Savior is here. The Messiah is here. He is unto us. He can belong to us. And he is mine through faith and trust. And once I come to know him as Savior and Lord, I will discover the way is clear. Not only is the wait over, but the way is clear. The way, what? The way to God. For Jesus is the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me or by me. I am the way. And Jesus makes the way to God clear. He says, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful is an interesting name. It means amazing. It means awesome. It means wow. It means spectacular. It is a word, in my opinion, that is often used when you can't use any other adjective to describe what you've seen or experienced. It's wonderful. And when somebody kind of throws that out there, wonderful, you just don't ask for exp- explanation because it, there's, there's really no explanation. It's beyond comprehension. It's beyond understanding. It's, it's greater than, than words can express. It's beyond my comprehension and my understanding. And he is a wonderful counselor. That word counselor is an interesting word. And it means that Jesus is our counselor. And by that, it is suggesting to us and stating to us that Jesus is the way by which we are saved. He is the way by which we are saved. He is our advocate. He is our, our go-between. He is the one who has bridged the gap between us and God. He is the mediator. He is the one that, that, that died on the cross, that resolved our sin issue with God. And once we place our faith and trust in him, that separation that divided us because of sin is removed. And now we can, by faith, step over that bridge and we can trust Jesus as our Savior and experience a love relationship with God the Father through faith in his Son. He is that mediator between us and God. He's the one that redeems us and reconciles us into a right relationship with God. And he is the way. There is no other way to have a right relationship with God other than through Jesus. It's not accomplished by an effort or work on our part, no matter what kind of work ethic you may may think you have or, or what kind of morality you think you bring to the table. It is insufficient. It is not enough. Jesus supplies our insufficiency and bridges the gap and brings us into a right relationship with God, and he is the way of salvation. This baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in Bethlehem, is our mediator, our go-between, who bridges the gap, who takes away the sin and reconciles us to God. He is the way of salvation. But he's not only the way of salvation, and through the person of Jesus, we learn the way, how we can be saved, but he is also the way of sanctification. He is the path to righteousness. He is the way by which once we are saved, we then follow in his footsteps as his disciple. And as we follow in his footsteps, as we follow his his lead, as we step where he stepped, as we listen to his voice, as we understand what he's calling us to do, we can then continue to grow in the likeness of Jesus and become fully transformed into his likeness. He is the way of salvation and the way of sanctification. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 47. I want us to go to this scripture very quickly. John chapter 1, verse 27. Jesus in John chapter 1 begins to call his disciples one by one. And earlier on, before 1 John 1, 47, Jesus calls Andrew and John. Um, John the Baptist is walking with with Andrew and, and, uh, and John, and they are walking, and he points to Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God. And they leave John the Baptist, and they become fully devoted Christ followers from that point on. The next day, Jesus seeks out Philip and calls him. And he simply says to Philip, follow me. And Philip leaves everything that he has, and he follows Christ. Philip does something unusual, though. Philip seeks out a man named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is is minding his own business, and Philip seeks him out, and he says, Philip, we have found the Messiah. He said, really? He said, yeah, I want you to come and see. We have found Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Most of us know what he said. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, anybody know a town like that? Can anything good come out of that town? Maybe that's why you left that town. But anyway, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He said, well, let me, let me show you. 
And he brings him to Jesus. And he introduces him to Jesus. Verse 47, John 1. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Before they was, he, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. In other words, there's no guile here. There's no deception. He is a, is a man who is seeking to live by the law. He's a man that's honest about his relationship with God and honest about his sin. He recognizes that he can't live up to the letter of the law and that there's sin in life that he needs to deal with. He's not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, someone who pretends to be righteous who in reality is not. He's honest about his sin. He is, is, is not a man of deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You find that interesting? He says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He's saying, Nathaniel, hey, dude, I saw you before you saw me. I knew you before you knew me. Jesus here is saying to us that the reason why he can be our counselor is because he is omniscient. He knows everything about you. He knows everything there is to know about everything. He has the right to be our counselor because he knows, sees, understands everything. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing about everything. He doesn't pretend to know everything like some of our friends do. He knows everything. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Why does Jesus have the right to become our counselor? Because he is all-knowing. I mean, if you want to go somewhere and go someone who knows everything about everything, go to Jesus. Because once you enter into a love relationship with him and you begin to, to know the person of Christ, you will begin to realize and understand that this Jesus that you put your faith and trust in is a Jesus who not only claimed to know everything, but does know everything. Turn to John chapter 21. Let's look at one last example of the omniscience of Jesus and what qualifies him to be your, my, our counselor. I don't know who you go to for advice, but the best counselor you can go to is Jesus. He knows everything there is to know about everybody and everything. He knows your past, your present, and your future all in the same time frame. He is all-knowing. He has all of the attributes and all the characteristics and all the nature of God the Father. He said to his disciples, if you want to know the Father, look at me because me and the Father are one. I share his attributes. I share his nature. I share his characteristics. Jesus, while he was on the planet, while he walked and breathed and lived, knew everything. And he still now, seated at the right hand of the Father, knows everything. And he is inviting us, not just to put our faith and trust in him as our Savior, but to invite him into our lives to be our counselor, to lead us and to guide us, to show us what we need to become and where we need to grow and what we need to release and what we need to add and how we need to be transformed. In John chapter 21, Jesus appears uh, by the Sea of Galilee. He's told his disciples to go and wait for him. And they're a little bit like us. <laughs> they get impatient waiting for Jesus. And so one of them suggests, hey, I'm tired of waiting for Christ. Let's go fishing. And I imagine there's somewhat of a discussion about what Jesus told them to do, but Peter wins out, and so they go fishing. And while they're fishing, they catch absolutely nothing, nothing. And Jesus shows up on the shore and said, hey, boys, what you got? Got nothing. How long have you been out there? All night long. And you got nothing? We got nothing. Hey, throw the net on the right side of the boat, and guess what? I bet you'll catch him. You're fishing on the wrong side. Anybody give you advice like that? It's the wrong, wrong bait, the wrong lure, the wrong place, the wrong side. What do you mean? Wrong side. I've been casting it on both, but 
For some reason, they were on the left side. He said, throw it on the right side. So they do it. And then all of a sudden, John recognized Jesus. And Peter does what Peter always does, impulsive, strips himself down to his underwear, dives in, and goes to the shore and meets Jesus on the shore. And when they arrive, they find that Jesus already has fish prepared for a meal. And they eventually bring the catch in. And now Jesus is going to have a one-on-one with one of his beloved disciples. Notice what happens in the text, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, you've, you've heard this passage numbers of times in many different. Some of you have been in church all your life, and you know that this first question Jesus asked him, he says, do you agape me? Do you love me with the highest form of love that you could possibly love me? Is it the highest love, the greatest love, a love that, that is so sacrificial that you'll be willing to die for me? Do you love me unconditional, sacrificially, completely, totally? Do you love me this way? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Lord, I I don't love you like that. I love you, but it's a friendship kind of love. I think it's interesting, he says, you know. You know, it's interesting in this dialogue between Jesus and one of his disciples. The disciple is well aware of the reality that Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows his heart. He cannot fool. He cannot hide. He cannot deny. He cannot play. He cannot tell Jesus something that's not reality. Lord, you know that I phileo you. I love you less than that. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I, I, I don't love you. I, I love you. You know that I love you. You know. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you love me like a brother? Do you love me like a friend? Do you love me less than what I deserve to be loved? And notice what he said. Yes, Lord, you know what? You know everything. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He was aware that Christ knew his heart condition. Verse 18. Truly, truly, Jesus said to him, I say to you, He has the right now to give him counsel because he is Jesus who knows not just the past, present, and the future. He says, I say, I'm speaking into your life. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. How many can say amen to that? But you don't do that anymore because he said, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus sees into his future. I mean, wouldn't you rather go to a counselor who can see into your present, not just your past, your present and your future? Hey, hey Jesus, I want to come to you as my supreme counselor, and I want to seek advice from you, and I want to look to you for the direction and and for insight into my life because you know not just where I've been, not just where I am, but you know where, where I'm going. You see my tomorrow. And so I'm going to seek advice and counsel and wisdom from you, you who are all wise and all knowing, and just, just, just lead me. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus knew the end of his disciples' life. It would end in death. How would you like to get that, that death sentence from Jesus? Hey, Jesus, where am I going? You're going to die. How am I going to die? You're going to die for your faith. You're going to die a martyr. 
You're going to die for my name. And then, after saying this, he says what? Follow me. Hey, I'm going to show you the end of the line. And in the meantime, as you know what the end of the line is going to look like, I want you to make sure that you follow me. Because the end of the line is going to be death. Follow me. The way is not just Jesus. The way is the person, and his name is Jesus. And the the ultimate purpose in us following Jesus is that we must enter into a love relationship with him that is so intimate, that is so close, that is so personal, that we hear his voice, we understand his will, we know his way, and we follow in his footsteps as he leads us step by step by step by step. The way is found in the person of Jesus. For he not only makes the way clear for salvation, but the way clear for you to ultimately fulfill the purpose that God has for your life. He is the way, and he makes it clear. Number three, he, is, he, he not only is that, but he is the war that he has finished. Unwrapping the gift, I discover the war is finished. The war is over. It's interesting that you shall be called not only Wonderful Counselor, but Mighty God. We're going to end here today with the mighty God. There's a war that is being waged right now. And the war that is being waged is for the hearts, the souls, the lives of men and women and boys and girls who have yet to come to know Christ as their Savior and their Lord. And that war is real. And once we come to faith in Jesus doesn't mean the battle is over. It means that part of the battle has been won. For Jesus being our conqueror, him being our savior, defeats the enemy once and for all, crushes his head and, 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 and clears out the way of sin and no longer allows sin then to have that sting that it once had before we came to faith in Christ. He said, and he shall be called mighty God. Mighty God. This baby wrapped in swaddling clothes is mighty God. Would that be a description that you would describe a child that was wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in that little town called Bethlehem? He's mighty? Do you ever, have you ever wondered, have you seen a little bitty baby? Do they look very mighty to you? They look very delicate and very tender. But this Jesus is mighty God. The word mighty means hero. It means hero. It means conqueror. He is our hero. He is our conqueror who crushed the the head of the enemy and has defeated Satan, sin, and death once and for all. He engaged the enemy for us on our behalf on that cross of Calvary, died for our sins, and defeated him once and for all when he rose from the grave, rose from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, giving those of us who place our faith and trust in him. Freedom, victory, and life. Why could he do that? Why could he be our champion? Why could he be our king? Why could he be our hero? Because he is God. Jesus was God, and because he was God, he entered the ring, and he fought your battle for you, and he defeated the enemy. And now through his win, through his victory, we now are victorious who place our faith and trust in him. Turn to Jude chapter 1, verse 24. Jude 1, 24. Let's look at how mighty this Jesus is very, very quickly. Jude 1, 24. How mighty, how powerful, how conquering, how victorious is this Jesus? It says in Jude chapter 1, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, notice, be glory, dominion, and authority Jesus has. Notice, Jesus Christ our Lord has. He has glory, he has majesty, but what I want to focus on this, he has dominion, and this Jesus has authority. When did he have this glory, majesty, dominion, and authority? Before all time. He's had it from the beginning. 
And when he came from heaven and was born through this child called Jesus in that manger, in that little town called Bethlehem, he still had all the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the authority of God the Father, the, that which he had before, before all time, and now, now and forever. He's never not been mighty God. He is always and will forever be mighty God. He's mighty. He is powerful. He has dominion. He has authority. Satan would have us to believe that he is not all-powerful, that he is not omnipotent, that he doesn't have all authority, when in fact, Jesus has had it from the beginning. He had it when he was here on the earth, and he has it now. And those of us who are in him have now his authority, his dominion, and his power available to us by his name. John 2.11. Let's take a look at the, the might of Jesus, the power of Jesus. There was a wedding in John chapter 2 where the wine ran out. Obviously, they were Presbyterian, not Baptists. That was a joke, okay? A poor one, but it was an attempt. And the wine ran out. And Mary knows that the wine has run out, and she goes to the, the, these, these servants and says, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And Jesus says, you know, it's not my time yet, Mom. Come on. But he performs his first miracle, and he tells them, get these jars, dip them in the water, and begin to serve. And as you serve, this water will turn into wine. Would you have done that? Seriously? Come on, be honest. But they do what Jesus says, and they dip their jars into the water, and they begin to serve. And guess what? It was the best wine, the better wine, that they served before. Because you see, they would serve the, the worst wine last. Everybody had a few, and they would notice how poor the wine was. I know you don't understand all that because you've been Baptist too long. <clears throat> and the groom asked, they asked, why did this come out? Now the best. And the servants, it says, knew. The servants knew. Jesus had the power to turn water into wine. How does that relate to me today and to you? He can take your insufficiency and turn it into sufficiency. He can take your lack and turn it into what you have need. He is that powerful. Take, a, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Matthew 8, 23. Jesus commands his disciples to get into a boat. They get into a boat and they begin to cross the Sea of Galilee. Verse 23 said, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. But behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And he was asleep. Felt like Jesus has been asleep during your storm. And they went down and they woke him saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing, we're dying. Where they really know Jesus was on board and they were not going to perish. It was an assumption on their part, a lack of faith. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea Obey him. Jesus is mighty God. He had the power. He had the omniscient power to calm the raging sea. Jesus has power to calm whatever storm you are facing or whatever storm you will ever face in the future. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And all he has to do is speak. And the winds stop and the waves stop. And calm becomes a reality. One last verse, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. He's not only Lord over the physical. He's not only Lord over the physical, but he is Lord over the spiritual. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful over not just the physical, the natural, but the supernatural, the spiritual. Matthew 9, 1. 
And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on the bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He has the omnipotent power to forgive sin. Jesus has the authority, the dominion, the power to forgive sin. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what you think you have done, how great a sin you have committed. He has the power to forgive sin because he is Lord over the supernatural. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, look at that, Jesus knowing their thoughts. They didn't speak out loud. He knew their thoughts. You want me to say something to you right now? I know it's close to 12 o'clock. Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows how long I've been up here. (laughs) He knows your thoughts. And he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is what I would like to ask you. Why are you thinking evil in your heart about me? I'm just kidding, just kidding. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sin. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men or to Jesus. They marveled at the authority that Jesus had. And I say to you, which would be easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, be healed? And Jesus, to prove his authority, his dominion, his power, the fact that he was the mighty God, not only healed him of his sickness, but forgave him of his sin. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Let me say that again. The sting of death is sin. But the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been given victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As you unwrap the gift of Christmas... We discover that not only is the wait over, because the Savior has arrived and he's been given unto us, undeserving as we are. He's been given unto us, not just the child that was born, but a Savior has been given unto us. In this child is a name, and his name is Jesus, and he came to save us from our sin. And now through the person of Christ, the way is clear, the way of not only salvation, but the way of sanctification, the way of walking, the way of living, the way of transformation. Why? Because the war is now over. And because of his victory, now we're victorious. Because we've been set free. And if the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. So if you know Jesus, why are you enslaved to sin? Why do we struggle so much? For as we unwrap the gift of Christmas... We discover in this little baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. As we close, our final question is this. I want you to ask yourself, what have I discovered by unwrapping the gift of Christmas? What have you discovered? Have you discovered a Savior? Have you come to the place and the point in your life that you know absolutely for certain that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord? Have you placed your faith and trust in him as your Savior? Have you committed to him your life and your love? He knows you. He saw you before you saw him. He knows where you are. He knows where you've been. And yet, he says, unto you, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believed in him might be saved. This gift 
of Christmas is for you. It's for all of us to come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. Have you received that gift? Have you trusted in that gift? Is he your personal Savior and Lord? If he has, is he your counselor? Is he your counselor? He is a wonderful counselor. And when you follow him, he'll lead you into wonderful things. Not only the way of salvation, but the way of sanctification. He's won the victory for you, and the battle is over. So why, then? Why are we not living free? Who is he to you? And what have you discovered in him today? Let's pray.